Thank you for having me. My name is Liz, and I am definitely, absolutely an alcoholic of the alcoholic variety. You know, I'm an alcoholic and all that that implies. And hopefully I'll have enough time to tell you what that implies for me. And uh, for those of you who like statistics, everybody likes stats, really. Even I like stats. My sober date is May 17 of 1997. So, oh, wow, holy. Um, am I allowed to curse? Well, I'm being recorded. I probably shouldn't curse. Well, this is the problem with, okay, I'm going to interrupt myself. So I just said my sobriety date is May 17th, 1997. And I want to say, this is what I want to say is, holy shit. <laughs> I cannot believe that. I am still in awe of that. But of course, I'm still truly Liz and an alcoholic. And what that means is as soon as you tell me that it's okay to use profanity, I have no desire to do so. But if you tell me at the beginning of a lead that we discourage profanity in a meeting, then all of a sudden, and no offense to anyone who actually has it, I develop Tourette syndrome out of the blue. And, you know, absolutely feel like I have to curse if you tell me that I cannot. So if I know that I cannot, I probably won't curse. So those are my stats. Is, um, I am bearing down a minute, an hour, and a day at a time to a quarter of a century sober. Doesn't that sound amazing? Put a day together, it becomes a week, it becomes a month, and it becomes a year. What if I just talk about what I was like, what the hell happened, and what I try and be like now as a sober alcoholic who, who really prefers to not drink a day at a time in the company of other alcoholics in Alcoholics Anonymous one day at a time. So that said, I think I'll stick with that. Um, my home group is the Mediterranean group that meets in Jerusalem every Wednesday at nine o'clock Israel. And that's my home group because I love Zoom. Zoom is an unbelievable, unbelievable renaissance for my personal program, my own recovery. And for that matter, in my, you know, possibly not so humble opinion, Alcoholics Anonymous as a rule. For example, Zoom has allowed me to kind of zoom in to the, the, what we call secular meetings or meetings where, you know, anything goes or, you know, I, and, and, and I am a very fortunate, I feel I'm a very, very, very fortunate sober alcoholic because, and I'll talk about this a little bit. I really don't care when anybody else believes. It is, of, uh, it is really of no importance to me what anyone else latches onto. Um, and that includes my sponsees or my sponsors. And I am a sponsor and I have a sponsor and my sponsor knows she's my sponsor. We literally talk every day anyway. She happens to live near me, whereas I sponsor women all over the globe now, thanks to Zoom. So, you know, basically our, we say, you know, um, our stories describe in a general way, what we were like, what happened, and what we are like now. Well, I'm going to take the we out of it other than I get drunk, we get sober. That's what I'm doing here. If you are under a year in this room tonight or this afternoon, know this. I 
was a bar fly drinker, a pig drinker. I drank men under the table and then I joined them there. Um, I am not a mother of human children that I know of because my blackouts were bad at the end. That's a joke. It might take a minute to get it. Um, but in fact, I want to wish all the mothers in here a happy Mother's Day who are in the United States because our Mother's Day is tomorrow. And even if you're the mother of fur babies, okay, happy mom day to you for tomorrow in the US. So what I was like, well, I mean, what I was like, you know, from your people always come in and they say, you know, I started drinking at 13 or I took my first drink when I was nine. And I'm going to tell you that I was someone who truly believes for me that trauma was my gateway drug. Trauma, childhood trauma was my gateway drug at the round 14 into the bottle. And because I'm old as dirt now, I mean, I'm, you know, really, it's like at this point, past, you know, past middle age and bearing down on old age. And by the way, if you just want to, you know, know how that works is don't drink, don't die. That's how you get to be a long time. Don't drink, don't die. So I, I truly believe that trauma got me into the bottle. And this is what happened. Although I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it at the time. What the hell did I know? Do you think that I was 14 years old with fake ID, the state of New York, where I was raised? I'm originally from Montreal, Canada, although I know I don't sound it. I was raised on Long Island, New York. I do sound like that. And then took my show on the road as a young adult, as an adult, and as an older adult, uh, until I got sober at the age of 42 from New York City to Los Angeles, to New York City, to Paris, France, to the south of France, to back to Paris, and so on and so forth. And I'll get there when I get there. But what I was like is that I do believe that I exhibited the signs of trauma and of certain characteristics that in um, AA we often hear, we use it in our literature, or let's say in traditional AA, we call character defects. Not a term I appreciate. I'm not a big fan of the word defects or the adjective defective, okay? What I had, what I can still have, what I try not to have, what I try to get rid of in the appropriate steps, which I'll get to, is I developed characteristics that as a child and a young adult, were my survival tools. And one of those survival tools, my darlings, was the bottle. So I was not 14, 15, or 16 with fake ID on a bar stool, Long Island, New York, or listening to rock concerts. Or while I was on acid at the age of 15, I did not turn to my neighbor, to the seat next to me or at the bar stool next to me and say, gee, isn't this amazing? Look what happens when I take a drink. I grow a foot. Oh yeah, I grow a foot. And my naturally black hair became waist length blonde. And you sitting next to me on the bar stool or in, you know, standing next to me at the rock concert or at the protest march became the B-52 bomber pilot CIA agent James Bond that I needed you to be. I couldn't have told you that then. This is, I'm, I'm Monday night quarterbacking on the old AA joke, if you wanna know why you drink or why you drank, stop 
and it will become abundantly clear. You wanna know why your drink stopped? Well, I didn't stop for the next almost 30 years, but I can tell you in hindsight, Monday night quarterback, that that's what happened to me, man, when I drank. I became better, better then, better then, taller. And the tip fairy came and gave me some, and the ass fairy came and took some away. And you were okay in my book, right? And from the get-go, I've always been this little itty bitty bit of a, you know, non-religiously raised. I was raised in a very intellectual, dysfunctional, rageaholic, workaholic home, Jewish, but not religious. I wasn't raised that way. Um, and I could look back again the benefit of time and see that I drank alcoholically out of the gate. And so remember when they said, I'm an alcoholic and all that that implies, or I'm an alcoholic of the alcoholic variety. I am the eldest of three children. I have two younger brothers. I have a middle brother. You know what happens when he takes a drink? Maybe the rare occasion he takes a drink. He takes a drink. Pardon me, I just took a drink of water. He takes a drink and he goes, oh, that's enough. He takes like five sips of some like girly drink, you know, some cosmopolitan or some blue martini or I don't know what the hell they invented since I stopped drinking. And he'll go, oh, he'll go, I've had enough. Ooh, that's enough, I'm working tomorrow or I'm driving tonight. And I'm like, what, what? So I'm the one, I'm the eldest child. My parents made their mistakes on me which is very often the case, being the eldest child. I was the black sheep and the scapegoat. And my middle brother was the hero child and my youngest brother was the favorite. I'm not, I'm not so sure that that family dynamic still exists, but I've learned how to deal with it in a loving and kind way. But that's, I'll get to that when I get to like what I try and be like now. So there I am, I'm a teenager. I'm gonna take my drinking show to college. I took it to college because I'm old as dirt, like I said, dry goods are a little bit involved. What they call the kindler, gentler, nicer dry goods, right? Um, that happened. And I take this show on the road to college. So I have a very good degree in sex, drugs, and rock and roll from Sarah Lawrence College in New York. Really, it's a, it's a famous school because we took a lot of pride and a lot of Yoko Ono, Carly Simon, right? And I could go on, the list is very long. Um, there's about to be, I think a Netflix movie though, about Sarah Lawrence, which is where I went to college on a serial predator rapist that sort of lived in his daughter's dorm room about 20 years after I graduated. I can't wait for that to come out, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. When New York stopped working for me around 1979, I was 22 years old, 22 and a half, I decided that New York isn't working and it's New York's fault, New York City in the late 70s. Let me tell you, it's not the New York of today. Okay? It is not New York City today. It was New York of the late 70s. And you did not walk around at night without a Rottweiler and an illegal sawed-off shotgun unless you had your pimp in front of you and were walking the Minnesota Strip, Times Square. So I took my show on the road to Los Angeles. 
And I worked for CB. I got a job. I like always been really, really lucky because, hey, I'm, you know, two speeds, right? Perfect or screw it. So I always got these great jobs. And then I always got fired from them, right? I got fired from my job. Normally because why? Well, as Clancy would say, because of bad breaks and misunderstandings, to quote another circuit speaker. No, I would get fired from jobs because I drank on the job. Let me give you two examples. I got this amazing job in post-production at CBS, TV City, Beverly and Fairfax in Los Angeles, okay, late 70s. I actually am the person that took delivery under FBI guard, FBI guard, because there was book all over the globe, especially in the UK, actually, not just Vegas, on the Who Shot JR episode of Dallas. And I took under FBI guard, I am not making this shit up, I took delivery of that. Imagine that this job that I had, that the FBI agents under armed guard delivered two reels from Lormar Productions. I brought it to where it was going to get broadcast at it. And yet I still got fired from this amazing job. Why? Well, because like any good girl in her 20s who, you know, was a sweet, young, crazy, alcoholic young thing, I was stupping my boss, wasn't I? <laughs> like, what? Like, oh, right? Anybody, any woman here or guy for that matter have any experience with slaving with their boss, maybe? Like, you know, pooping where you eat, maybe? Well, that was me. And so I got fired because I think I hit him in the face. I think I, I punched him right in the face. And so when I say I got fired for bad breaks and misunderstandings, I'm giving you little inklings of what Liz was like. And not only when she was, you know, falling down drunk. I wasn't falling down drunk every second of the day. I took my show, eventually I hate, I'd be, I couldn't stand LA anymore. And I had better jobs than that. And I got fired. I got fired for stealing magnums of Dom Perignon out of the fridge. How about that? I mean, how bad an alcoholic do you have to be? And then I get back to New York. And then I have people in my life like the Teflon Don, John Gotti, because I prided myself on being the nice little Jewish girl who was the girlfriend of May Button guys. That's what I was like. I was a drinking person and a drugging person. I'll just pause here for a second. Just got a slight moment of zen. We have a chapter in our big book called A Vision for You. When I say I went back to New York, to 1981 through 85 and starting in LA, but really going, getting bad in New York. Those were my cocaine years. So when I say, I want you to take a moment and imagine me on cocaine, we'll call that a vision for you. All right. Didn't I not say I was Gina Geographic? I was Gina Geographic. I did what a good alky is going to do. I changed my life. I turned 30 years old. I walked into, I had an amazing job that I almost got fired from, but was hanging on to by my nails at American Express, which is by the way, how I knew John Gotti, who by, by the way, would say things to me like, Elisabetta, Elisabetta, maybe you should not have another grappa. Maybe you should just not have another Anzette. Now, 
when the capo, the Tutti Capi, the guy who whacked the head of the Gambino crime family, who was, by the way, absolutely gorgeous, when he, like, I was, you know, it was a, a point of pride that I knew him. When that guy tells you that you should curb your drinking and you pay no attention to it, you know that it's like in hindsight, I was, it was bad. I quit my job in American Express where I did quite well, actually, remember, perfect to screw it. And I, I say return because I had already lived in France for a little bit. I missed Paris desperately. I considered it my spiritual home. I still do for that matter, but just not there. And, um, and that's okay too. And I got, and I moved my life back to France. And that was in 1985. And in very short order, what was heavy drinking, partying, a little bit of brown, a little gray out over here, a little black, a little brown out. Not blackouts, but brownouts over there. You know, having consequences, but I was a young thing. I didn't care about it. My liver wasn't shot yet. I was still in my, you know, now I'm 30. Now I am now in a situation in France and I'm legal too. I did it the right way. I emigrated in a legal way as a, as a non-common market citizen. Um, my drinking is now going out of whack. I, I'm now starting to skate along my bottom. And that took another 12 years, another 12 years. And like I always say, some of you have heard me say it. My story, I think is like anybody else. I really don't think it's any different. No matter what age you are, no matter how much time you've got. It's the good, the bad and the ugly. And my drinking was at first good. Not that it was really ever good when I look at consequences. I just didn't care about the consequences. So it was good when I was in my teens and early adulthood. But it went from the good to the bad. And if my drinking and the consequences of the consequences of my alcohol use and abuse, let's call it what it is, addiction, hence, by the way, what it means to be an alcoholic, what it means to be an alcoholic is not the way my brothers drank or the way my mother drank. Ooh, I've had enough. It's the way I drank. The way I drank because one was not enough and 17 and change were not enough. Nothing was enough ever. Nothing was enough. Booze, men, dough, blow, you name it. So now my story is starting to veer from the bag to the ugly. I'm now in my 30s and climbing and it's starting to get ugly. I now find myself, if my drinking and consequences to my drinking had stayed bad, um, I would probably be dead and you would have another speaker tonight because I don't think I would have come here. So, but it didn't, it went to ugly. And I'm finding myself now in the South of France with a man I had no business being with. I had many husbands when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and none of them were mine, honey. None of them were mine. So the guy in the South of France was not my husband. He was somebody else's husband. And my drinking now has gone to a whole other level. I had three car accidents, one after another. I almost died in two of them totaled my car, my Renault 9, which they don't even make anymore. This is in Peter Mail country in the Luberon. So let's fast forward a little bit. So I want to get into recovery now. 
So much for a very long jonquilogue, but really who cares? I get back to Paris. I run away. I think I do what I always do. I do what I always do. I ran. I'm a runner. I'm a runner and a fighter. I still am, you know, I still have a tendency to that, but now at least I'm aware of it. I'm aware of it. And I have a and I have solutions to it because that never served me well. So I ran away and I go back to Paris. And now I spiral out of control. And I have a lot of guys in my life I have no business being with. I'm doing the job that I don't really want to do to make money. And I blamed it on Paris, which had begun to smell bad. I blamed it on my job, which sucked. I was a professor of English, by the way, um, at the very highest levels of the French government and the private sector. And on the morning, or wee hours really, of May 17th of 1997, I came out of a 40 minute vodka coma and I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop crying. I had shed many, many, many tears before. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm yelling, I think. I feel like I'm yelling, so I'm, so I'm, I'm drinking water here, sorry, but um, I couldn't stop crying. And I already had a couple of what we call mocks, what I like to call a mock moment of clarity. One of which happened to me um, when I took some time off from my job as a teacher of English and uh, they were about to fire me again. Needless to say, I was about to get fired again, again, for bad breaks and misunderstandings. It was their fault. No, it's because I was drunk on the fucking job. That's why. And I had a moment of clarity in the Gulf of Mexico because I got on a plane. What do I do? I flew to Miami and then I flew from Miami to Sarasota and I, my parents weren't there and they had a crib. They had a crib in Sarasota on the Gulf of Mexico and I stayed there and I got into the water with dolphins fully dressed with a Heineken in my right hand. And I feel like the dolphins spoke to me and I'm not even from California. I'm not even from California. And it sounds like I'm talking like some new age California, but it's true. And dolphins, by the way, just as a sidebar, are for sure a power greater than lives. Just so you know. I went into this thing, an atheist. If you define atheism as the non-belief in a designer, creator, or monotheistic sort of Judeo-Christian God that is, you know, the language, for example, of our literature by Bill Wilson, um, I wasn't when I got here and I'm still not, but this is what I, but this is what AA did for me. I'm not it. I'm not the superior power. I, I'm not it. What it, that superior power is a power that's more powerful, more internally strong and externally strong, and it can manifest in external ways, such as a hurricane, the sun itself, or in this case, dolphins. So I had a moment of clarity. In, it was a pod full of wild dolphins in the water. That it, and this was a couple of months before I got sober, March of 97, what if I had this thought? What if my problem that all the that now I'm making friends out of enemies, enemies out of friends, I'm about to lose my job. I was blaming all of you. It's all your fault. 
the city of Paris to my job. I wasn't doing what I was trained to do, which was art. I wasn't doing this. I was like, you know, messing around with men. I had no, as I said, I had no business being with. I was in emotional pain all the time. And I thought to myself, they're standing fully dressed in a sweatsuit in the Gulf of Mexico in March of 97. What if the problem was alcohol? What if the problem was alcohol? Oh my God, I freaked out. That thought was so horrible that I had to run back upstairs into my parents' apartment, grab a bottle of Jack Daniels and pour a Jack Daniels bourbon back because uh, I, liked, I, I liked a good shot of Jack, right? I had to pour myself what they call uh, a ball back to that beer. The thought was so horrible. So fast forward to the, to, to the May month of May following that beautiful month of May in Paris. And I come to you out of a 40 minute vodka coma and I couldn't stop crying. And across my living room floor was an international Herald Tribune which was the way back then, before no one was using the internet, there were no websites, there was none of aaparis.org, there was none of that. There was an ad. I knew it because I had seen it. For Alcoholics Anonymous, both in French and English, in Paris. And I was fully bilingual, I spoke French, but for some reason, I called the number for the ad for AA in English. Don't know why, even though I speak French. And I eventually got a woman on a phone. It was a Sunday. It was now Sunday, the 18th of May. And my last drink was on the 17th and I did not know. And I called the phone in for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have no clue why other than there were spiritual resources at work that I cannot define. I don't know what it is. I don't have to know what it is. That's just what happened. And her name was Carol. And I didn't know then what I know now. So I'm going to say it now that the three most powerful words in my recovery, some people will call them a prayer. Some people will just say words. I don't care what you call them. But for me, the three most powerful words or prayer, or it doesn't matter, with help. Thank you. Wow. Help. Thank you. Wow. And I didn't know it then. I know it now. I know it now. So Carol directed me to my first meeting, which she was said was on a Tuesday. But in fact, I went on the Monday, which was a bank holiday that year. And to scope out the meeting venue, again, I knew that I drank too much, too often. I couldn't stop when I wanted to, which is a very clinical definition of alcoholism. Lord knows I tried. I could not. I could not. And so I ended up my first AA meeting on Monday, the 19th of May. And it was what I called a supermodel meeting. All these famous supermodels because it was the fashion month and they pushed me in the room. Trust me, I was trying to get out of there. I was 42 years old and bloated. And there were I literally like 25 of the most famous supermodels of the time 
gracing the, and they were out there smoking, smoking, smoking. The meeting was in progress. There was one way out and one way in. That's the way I went in was the way I you could go out. And I was starting to sneak backwards. I'm like, my high heels, at the I was wearing high heels still then. My high heels were getting caught in the cobblestones at St. Paul's Church in the Marais of Paris. And they, uh, they pushed me in the room. These bunch of supermodels that collectively weighed like one stone, you know, they weighed like a hundred pounds. And they go, looking for the meeting, honey, looking for the meeting. They pushed me in the room and that was it. And I got into this room in the middle of the meeting. Can you imagine? I should have been medically detoxed and was not. And I hear people talk about, what are they talking about? They're talking about rage. They're talking about resentment. They're using words like resent. They're using word like depression. I mean, whatever they were talking about, it was feelings. I have really not too much memory of this. But nobody was talking about booze. And in my head, I knew that you guys had a secret since I'd seen the movies, Days of Wine and Roses. I'll cry tomorrow with Susan Hayward. I mean, it's not like I didn't know anything about AA. I figured that you guys had a secret that had to do with the higher power, capital H, capital P, and, and the 12-steppery and, and things called whatever, sponsors or whatever, that would teach me how to drink responsibly, responsibly, yes, like a lady without ending up in a sex club across town with some lover's cousin from the provinces with whom I had no business being with. Okay, I, the English professor, had no words, none to describe what I had been feeling the morning after or the morning after the morning after for years. And interestingly enough, it was our literature and I'm not a thumper, that's much in the big book that I love and much that I love a little less. How's that? Much that I love a little less, okay? Well, one of the things I love is the doctor's opinion and more about alcoholism because there I read the words that described to me what I had pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I, this big English teacher, the big reader did not have those words. I read them. When I got my hands on that first, the, my the third edition, that's what happened. And Carol came on board as my sponsor. And by the way, I hated her. I hated her. She was mean. She would say things, you have to call me every day. I go, what do you mean I have to call you every day? What are you talking about? I'm a 42 year old woman. I'm like, I'm, I'm scrambling to keep my job. And I work all day, I'm fucking exhausted and I have to call you every day. I'm a grown ass woman, what are you talking She said, I told you, I didn't want to sponsor you. And you pleaded with me and you begged me to sponsor you. And I said, no, I'm too old, too cranky and too sober to take on a member of the debating society. I'm like the debating society. Like, well, who would she, how dare, she should be honored to sponsor one such as myself. That's what basically I saw. And she didn't want to sponsor me. I actually did beg her. I don't know why. She was my Eskimo, that's why. And Carol took me through my first uh, five steps to step five. And you, I, I want to say this. Uh, here's another thing that I have no explanation for. So uh, some people will call this um, God. Some people will say higher power. Some people will say superior power. And I don't really care what you call it or what you do not call it. I'll tell you what I call it. I'll call it 
an intervention that had nothing to do with my premedial frontal cortex, which if you can see me on camera, and I kind of hope you can't, but if you can, is the area of my, to the front of my forehead where they used to give uh, lobotomies, all right? Where these actually perform a lobotomy. My denial and defenses are actually located in that part of my brain. So anything that doesn't come from that part of my brain it's probably a good thing. And I could refer to that as an internal source or you know, my spiritual condition is being connected with something that is superior, for example, to my denial and defenses. I did exactly what Carol told me to do. I called her every day. She had me 12 stepping really early on going into hospitals with other newcomers doing 12 step work. She explained to me that no matter how I would learn to practice the steps that I was making a covenant with her. What was the covenant? I had to make her the promise that when I was done working the steps, I would continue to work them forwards, backwards, in order, upside down and standing on my head, but that I had to commit to take someone else through them as well. And she said, no matter how you do that, no matter how you do that, that may change the way you approach the step. The principles of the steps will never change. And so it was Carol who got me on the road to understanding what honesty is and the freedom the freedom to be found in liberating myself, Liz, from perfect or screw it, the delusion that I could control when I cannot, which is the unmanageable, un, I can't even talk anymore, the unmanageable part of the second half of step one. So let's take a look at that, right? I admit, and I admitted with you, with you, I don't like to do this by myself. I didn't drink by myself. Well, I did drink by myself, but I was not a stay-at-home drunk. So I have no desire to not drink by myself. So we admitted we. I am under no delusion or illusion that I do get drunk, but we stay sober. Zoom has also proven that to me. I mean, just look at this situation. I want to tell you a little Zoom story. So Carol took me through the first five steps and at that point, I had different needs and I changed sponsors. And my second sponsor, uh, Brian D, um, now lives in Palm Springs, California. Brian was, the, he used to say things to me, girl, he'd go, girl, you know what? When you hear it's principles before personalities, what that really means is it's principles before your personality. Like, that's what he would say. I mean, he would say things to me like that. He would say, girl, you know, you're going to in four, five, six, and seven, name it, claim it, and dump it. Name it, claim it, and dump it. And steps four, five, six, and seven. And like, you know, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. There was no Ben and Jerry's. That he would say Baskin Robbins ice cream. He would say, um, and for, for those of you who are not Yanks, just a, a chain of ice cream stores that had 47 different varieties. And Brian would say, you will get rid of your negative traits, your negative characteristics that were survival tools like alcohol, no longer work for you. We're gonna take a look at those again. You're going to make your nine steps. You will make living amends. You will write letters to those because you can't write every wife. You cannot go to every wife of every husband who wasn't yours that you dallied with and make an amends because it would hurt them or others. 
So you're just not going to do that shit anymore. Brian took me through the remaining steps. And lo and behold, I did my nine steps. And the promises started to come true. And when people, when, if you hear people say that AA or any A, for that matter, any A doesn't make promises, they're lying. They do. They make a promise. And that happened to me that I started to instinctively know how to handle situations, which means relationships with other people that used to baffle me. So just, I just want to share something about this venue. So of course, I, like a lot of other people, I stopped going to in-person meetings uh, at the beginning of COVID lockdown. And I now feel, because I'm still an alcoholic, by the way, I still feel that Zoom now really owes me my own private Gulfstream 5 with, because I've racked up so many Zoom miles. I really feel like they, right? Such an alcohol. And here's a true story of an example of Zoom. I still go to, I, I still don't go to in-person meetings. I just, I just don't. And it's great if you do. I, I just don't here in Florida. So I do a lot of Zooming. When I was around four months sober, since almost 25 years ago, my friend, another newcomer and myself started to order cassette tapes. There was not even CDs yet. Cassette tapes from the Gopher State Tape Library, which is for those of you who are not Yanks, the Gopher State is Minnesota. And the Gopher State Tape Library was, they made cassette tapes of AA circuit speakers who would speak around the globe, mostly North America, but not just in North America, and record them. And then you could buy them from this library in Minnesota. And on a landline from Paris, France, my friend Federica and I would call on a landline, you can imagine the phone bills back then, to Minnesota from Paris and order at random, just randomly speaker tapes. One of those speaker tapes, well, a lot of them came from the Pacific group. One of the speaker tapes is a woman named Sharon B. B like Mark, she's her own name. And she would, I, li I listened to her, fifth, I don't know, if I listened to her once, I listened to her 75 times in different varieties on her cassette tapes, lying on my couch in my first year of recovery. And I would go to a meeting, I would you know, do fellowship after meeting, it kept me sober, I was working the steps, I started to sponsor my, anyway, and I would listen to Sharon on cassette tape, that's 1997, early 98, wait for it. What do you think I'm about to tell you? So I have lots of stories like this, but this is the most recent. So one of the meetings I attend is a meeting in Barcelona every Monday. And not long ago, there was a speaker for uh, Barcelona, advertises Sharon C from Los Angeles. And there's lots of Sharons in Los Angeles. I didn't put two and two together. Remember now, it's almost 25 years later. And um, I happened to go on to that meeting on Zoom. And I'm, I'm now seeing the woman. I'm, I'm seeing her. And she's telling her story under the name Sharon C, like Charlie, not B like boy. And as she's talking, I realize it's Sharon B. I realize it's the woman whose voice I was glued to from California and who was so 
such an influence on me just listening to her story over and over again that from Paris, I tracked her down using a landline back then, no internet, tracked her down by calling every law firm in Beverly Hills at a 97 until I found her and she picked up the phone and I said, my name is Liz and I'm an alcoholic and I'm calling you from Paris, France and I have like three months or whatever it was. And I just have, and she talked to me on the phone and she told me how to get in touch with other people and so on. All right, fast forward almost 25 years. I'm looking at her. I never had seen her. And there she is filling my iPad screen. This is recently. And when it went to share back, I raised my hand right away. And I know the host of that meeting really well. We're always you know, chatting on WhatsApp. I raised my hand and the host called on me and I looked at her and I went, Sharon, my name is Liz and I'm an alcoholic. I'm, you won't remember, you won't remember, but I called you from Paris, France in 1997 and I tracked you down in California because your cassette tapes were like so amazing to me. And she interrupted me in front of 150 other people on Zoom. She unmuted herself. And she looked right at me on her Hollywood square. And she went, oh my God, Paris Liz, I remember you. So if you're in this room tonight, and you think that I won't remember you if I'm still alive, uh, and I have no short-term memory left, but if you think that we won't remember you, we will remember you. We will remember you. And we'll remember you every week, every day, keep coming back. Because I went from the place where everyone knew my name, but nothing else, to the place where everybody knows my name and everything else about me. That is a really comfortable place to be. And all I needed to know now, and I'll end with this, is that now I know what those important words are and it doesn't matter what you believe or don't believe, that all of it in Alcoholics Anonymous is about help. Thank you. Wow. Thank you all for listening to me tonight. My name is Liz and I'm an alcoholic and I'm a grateful sober alcoholic right now. Thank you all so much.